Well, would you stand and join with me for the reading of the Word of God? I'm in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You may be seated. Father, I just ask for a special anointing of your spirit this morning. Father, we, we simply ask for a miracle. We ask that by the power of your spirit that you would awaken our hearts, that we could receive all that you intend for us. Father, we, we thank you for the faith in which we stand. We thank you for the church body that you have made us a part of. We thank you for the unity that we can experience in Christ. Father, we, we pray that this morning would be instructive to us, that we, we would grow in this area. Father, that you would imprint upon us the unity of the Spirit and that we would truly experience it each and every day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I titled this Maintaining the Unity of the Spirit. And um, I actually didn't expect to be up here this morning. I've been down south in, in Southern California for the week at uh, Master Seminary Shepherds Conference. The first time I've ever been able to go, I was always the guy holding down the fort. And, and I just said, uh, you know, long ago, it, and it sells out usually within a week, so when it came up, I don't know, it was back in September, and I said, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go. Somehow I'm gonna make it happen. So I did go, and uh, had a, had, I was having a great time, and then, and then hoped for plans for pulpit supply. Just didn't quite come together the way we thought it would, and one of the guys trying to be encouraging to me, he said, well, maybe down there you'll come up with some inspiration that the Lord will give you that you can share with the congregation on Sunday. And I tell you, the inspiration that I have is I am inspired to quadruple our efforts to find a teaching pastor. <laughs> That's what I'm inspired about. So not that we're dragging our feet. We, we, we really are um, seeking the Lord. We're, we're seeking to be diligent on it. And, but it's, it's, it's big shoes to fill, isn't it? And so switched travel plans, came, came back, fighting my way through flash floods, danger on the roads, made it home Friday night and sat down in front of my computer. And uh, um, here we are. Maintaining the unit, unity of the Spirit. And I tell you, one thing I did come away from many things from the Shepherds Conference. It, it really was a wonderful experience. But um, one of the general experiences that you can't get away from is the sense of unity that you, that you feel. And, and I'm talking about unity among four or 5,000 men. And... And it's, and it's unique. And I imagine we've all at times felt a special experience of unity with another group or a group of individuals. And I think this text is instructive because it, it, it explains for us what to the Christian is essential. And that is the unity of the Spirit 
none of us are, are alone on an island, are we? I mean, we, we go through this Christian experience in fellowship, locked hand in hand with one another. In fact, I'd risk to say you really can't experience Christianity on yourself. Now, God is gracious. You find yourself on a desert island and you got a picnic lunch and, and a case of water, you're going to find fellowship with the Spirit. God is faithful. He will be there with you. But God intends for us to live in community. And he intends for us to experience that community in unity. So Paul, in this encouragement to the church, he starts out in this first verse, really with an emphasis. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this is something common to us all. This is, some, this is a calling that we, that we all experience together. So when Paul says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he is saying more than just behave in a certain way. He is saying we should behave consistent with or equal to something. He is telling us we have a guide. We have, God has given us a benchmark. Well, first, maybe we should define this word calling a little bit. Because we've all probably heard the term that the Lord called us, right? We've been called in the Lord. And theologians will throw a fancy name on it. They'll, they'll call it the effectual calling of God. This is also called the gospel call. And it's whereby the Holy Spirit does a work of regeneration in our hearts, convicting us of sin, granting us repentance, and the exercise of faith in Christ. It's here that we trust Christ that all our sins, all our guilt, is swept away by his blood, his suffering, and has been put upon his cross. Paul puts it much better than I can. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the gospel call. It's a work of God. It's not our work. It is the effectual calling of the gospel. But in this text... In the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is referring to an additional call. It's a, it, it's a call on our lives as saved believers walking in Christ. It's a call to a new way of living. He says, walk in a manner equal to or consistent with the new life that you have been called to. And you think about it. So everything's changed. And if we were to go back to that very beginning of Ephesians and those uh, wonderful first, I think, 16 verses where Paul lays out all that we have received in Christ, we are heirs of the king. We are children of God. We are adopted into the family of God. And Paul lays this out many times through the scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, 
we ask and urge you, that same, same word, urge you in the Lord, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul says this over and over again. I think one of the most helpful verses we can look at right now is his discussion with the young pastor, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, 8, 9, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. So I'd like to look at three specific principles that Paul lays out in these two verses that I think are tremendously helpful in looking at our calling. He gives us three things. First, he gives us the how of our calling. And he says, by the power of God, by the Spirit. See, there's, there's no human effort. There's no grit that we can put together in, of, in and of ourselves to fulfill our calling. The how of it is by the Spirit of God. Speaking to the Corinthians, which tended to be somewhat of a prideful church, he says to them, who has made us, in God, as sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant? And then he says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And what he means by that is no amount of rules, no amount of list-taking, no amount of checklists are going to enable us to fulfill our calling. It is the Spirit that gives life. It's as we submit to the Spirit. It's when we trust the Spirit, when we lean into the Spirit, when we cry out to the Spirit, that's when we're enabled, empowered. That's the how of our calling. And then he gives us the why of our calling. He says, because his own purpose. And this is so important. We, 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 even, even as mature Christians, we can get into seasons in life that we are convinced that our priorities, our goals within the Christian life are God's goals and God's priorities. He says we've been given a calling because of his own purpose. God has a specific reason for calling you and I if you are a follower of Christ. It's a God-directed calling. It's not a Michael-directed calling. It's a God-directed calling. It's not detached from the kingdom and its purposes. Your calling is an integral part of God's purposes and plan and redemptive work on the earth. That would be a lot of pressure if it wasn't for the first one. We do it through the power of the Spirit. And then thirdly, regarding our calling, he gives us the when. He says, we were given a calling before the ages began. Before the ages began. What, you're, you're telling me before I accepted Christ? Before that. Before that guy witnessed to me? Before that. Before I heard John 3.16, before that. Before Sunday school when I was five years old, before that. Before I was born, before that. God's calling was established before the ages began. 
Isn't that interesting? I love Isaiah 46.10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Well, doesn't God have to adjust? Doesn't, doesn't he have to kind of change course every now and then when things go awry? I mean, there's lots of things that are going crazy. Certainly God is adjusting and changing and, and reworking his plan. The truth is there is no plan B. God's redemptive work was established from before the ages began and our calling was part of it. This is one of those fun words. It's, it's a characteristic of God that's called the immutability of God. And it means God is not changing. He never changes. He never suddenly flies off the handle. He never suddenly acts in an unexpected way. I am, I am so grateful for that. Can you, can you imagine if our God was like one of the Greek gods of mythology that would be subject to the whims of their emotions and their angers. God isn't like that. He never changes. Paul says to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that's our calling. We've been called by God. He's shown us the how, the why, the when. And now Paul, in this text, he's going to show us the character of of our calling. Verses two through three, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So now Paul is detailing the characteristics that are consistent with the calling that we have been given, okay? This is fleshing it out. And these are not qualities our, our, our culture typically values, is it? Why do you think that is? Why do you think the culture does not typically value humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity Sure, you meet nice people, but when push comes to shove and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and that uncontrolled, inner, unregenerate self comes out, it is a very, very dangerous world. And it's based on values that are not consistent with God's values. They're not consistent they're, they, they're not consistent with the calling, or our values are not consistent with the calling of the world. And that's essentially what the conflict is. The world is baffled, frankly, by our values. Peter tells us, now that we are in Christ, he says in his first letter, chapter four, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And with respect to this decision, to follow God in this manner. He says, with respect to this, they, meaning people that we've known, people in the world, people outside of Christ, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Come on, Bible thumper. Put it down. Give it a rest. This makes no sense. These values make no sense to those outside of Christ. So the contrast between your calling and Christ 
or your calling in the world is stark. There's no gray area. It's stark. Paul puts it to the Philippians this way. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we value these qualities because they are consistent with our, with our calling from God to make him known, to make his glory known, his kingdom known, and his righteousness known to a dying world. And again in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So now giving us sort of the framework of the character of our calling, I want to dive a little bit into the details of the character of our calling. And he breaks it down to four specific elements. He says humility and gentleness, patience, Did I miss one? Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when we hear humility and gentleness, and maybe this is mostly a guy thing, but sometimes we can make the mistake to think of this as weakness. And and certainly the world, if you were to tell Fortune 500 CEO, you, you need to be characterized by humility and, and, and meekness. He's probably not going to think that's, that's the power choice. But the truth of it is, when the Lord talks about humility and gentleness, it's not weakness. It's rather strength under control. It's strength under control. We have the army of the living God on our side, but we do not need to revile or threaten. It's under control. Do you know what weakness really looks like? It's anger that can't be controlled. It's rage. It's striking out. Isn't it interesting? The Bible says one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. You lack self-control. You probably lack humility and gentleness as well. Weakness also looks like unrestrained sarcasm because you feel you've been insulted or slighted. 1 Peter 2, 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself who judges justly. He did not revile and he did not threaten. And we have to remind ourselves because it seems so inconsistent, he had no lack of the ability to threaten. He had no lack of the ability to dramatically alter someone's future, if you know what I mean. There is a power there that, that Jesus 
feels no need to show. But it underlines everything he does. I've told this story a few times, and I think it's somewhat illustrative here. In another life, I was a commercial advertising photographer, worked in the industry for quite a while down in Southern California, and in, in the early days, I was a studio manager, and one of my jobs was to manage the equipment, and if we were on location, I'd have to acquire equipment or get the equipment there. And I remember we were doing a shoot up in the hills of Los Angeles where it was a car ad, and uh, we, had been, we had been told about um, a supplier in the area uh, that we needed to shoot, and um, it, was, it, it was this uh, so professional equipment shop, but it was in an old um, converted firehouse, so complete with the whole old red brick. And um, I remember walking in, and there was just a long um, tunnel. You know, and those old buildings always seemed to be kind of very moody lighting. You know, they don't have, like, even fluorescent lighting. It was like, you know, a big bulb at the end of the corridor. And as we entered the building, the, the um, head photographer that I was working for that was with me, he said, now, don't be nervous. But the guy who owns this building, he owns a timber wolf. And, I mean, I'd never seen a timber wolf. I, I'd watched National Geographic and that sort of thing, but I'd never seen a timber wolf in life. And, well, that's kind of interesting. How does he have a timber wolf? Well, he was out hunting, and he came across a baby timber wolf, and, and the mother was apparently dead or gone, so he brought her home, and he raised it, and he kept it, and... I thought that would be kind of interesting. So we start heading down this hallway, and I can see it off in the distance. And it's, and it's laying across the entire hallway from side to side in this very wide hallway. It wasn't narrow at all. And as I got closer, I mean, it's just striking me. This thing is enormous. This, this is not a large lab. And, I mean, I, you know, I didn't pull out a tape measure, but I'm thinking, I mean, a good, I don't know, eight feet, maybe? And who knows how heavy? And, and, but the amazing thing was, as I approached this animal first, the guy said, just step over it easily. <laughs> you know, apparently I wasn't supposed to kick it and move it or anything, which I was all for that but just step over it. And I think the, the thing that I really retained from this whole thing, I know the story is dragging on, but is it never moved. It never moved. It just, it, it just, its eyes just locked on me. And I, I step over it and I move on. You know, I didn't get torn to shreds or anything. But I, 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 I was absolutely confident it could do whatever it wanted to me. It, it had the power to end my life in a second. And there was this unearthly control to the animal that, that it, it wasn't, it didn't communicate any maliciousness or, um, you know, anything negative really other than the underlying clear awareness that it could do anything it wanted to do. And... I will never forget that. And, and, you know, I think about Jesus in so many circumstances. And I think Timberwolf. Kent Hughes talked about these words, humility and gentleness, and he said this. He said, there is nothing spineless or timid about it. Jesus described himself with both words saying, I am gentle meek and humble in heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine. We see his steel-like meekness in two ways. First, in respect to himself, his power not to practice retaliation, his ability to forgive 
And second, his fierce defense of others and of truth. And I think of verses like this, Matthew 26, 52, 53. This is not seen. Judas comes up with the chief priests and uh, a bunch of soldiers. People have swords. People have clubs. People have torches. And an utterly imposing scene that would make us all wither, I imagine. And, and uh, remember, Peter, don't think, just act, whips out his sword, hacks off the ear of the servant of the chief priest, and Jesus says, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword, Peter. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's, that's the power that Jesus held while they led him away to be crucified. 12 legions of angels were at his beck and call to wipe them all out. Again, Jesus stood before Caiaphas and the council. They spit in his face and struck him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Or when Jesus faced Pilate and Pilate asked, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Do you not fear me? Is what he meant. And Jesus answered him, calmly and confidently. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Timberwolf. Timberwolf. Well, the next quality Paul talks about is patience. And this is the quality of not being short-tempered, rather being long-tempered, if you will. Colossians 1.11 says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. If there ever was a quality or character worthy of our calling and consistent with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's patience, isn't it? Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance of patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You know, as, as a young parent, I, I, you know, I made so many mistakes, and one of the lessons the Lord taught me over the years is, I think it's from James, the wrath of man does not bring about the repentance of God. It just doesn't. We, we, can, we can be impatient. We can be angry with people. But it is the patience and kindness that leads us to repentance, isn't it? I mean, that's how we experience it ourselves. If we experience God in, in such a way that he was, he was constantly impatient with us and saying, why did you do it that way? I can't believe it. Oh man, we would give up the first day, wouldn't we? But that's not how it happened. It might have been over years, decades. Millennia if you lived long enough. Who knows? But that's how patient and kind the Lord is. And it's his patience and kindness that leads us to repentance. And if, the, and if we are to fulfill our calling as part of the body of Christ and encourage others to repentance, we need to do it with patience and kindness. And I think it's fascinating that he equates patience with kindness. And God uses both of those to lead us to repentance. 
So what greater tools can we find to fulfill our calling but patience and kindness? And then Paul says, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3.13, very similar. He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. You can call this godly absent-mindedness. Right? This is an attitude focused on the long game. It's not to drill down to discover everybody's faults that comes across your path. It anticipates eternal glorification. Isn't that an interesting way to look at brothers and sisters? Anticipating their certain and eternal glorification rather than focusing on temporal failing. Verses that we know oh too well, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. And I love this. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things. It endures all things. Have you ever been treated by someone where you can tell that the underlying assumption is that you are going to fail, you are going to make a mistake, and you are going to do wrong? That is the opposite of loving them. Loving them, Paul says, is that we bear all things, even the difficult stuff. We believe all things. No matter what has happened, God can, God can work in this life. And, God, and if it's a believer, God is working in this life. Love hopes all things. Sometimes it by the way we approach people, it, it seems like we're hoping that they'll fail, just so it proves us right. Yep, told you, he's a loser. It endures all things. And then Paul says this, he says, eager to maintain the unity of peace in the, in the bond of peace. I'm sorry, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is the quality, this is that fourth quality, this is the quality that really sums up all the other three. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So there's two key words in that phrase that are super helpful to us. One is be eager, eager. That means use speed, make every effort, be diligent. Right, so this this is this doesn't come about by just a, a, a passive walking through things. This is this is very purposeful. Be eager, be ready. This is this is what we're looking for. Okay, this is indicates an, it's an all-out commitment to maintaining the unity. Right. Be eager. If it isn't a commitment, if it isn't important, it's probably going to fall apart. This is something that takes focus. This is something that takes commitment. It's not a half-hearted attempt. We've got to be, as a body of believers, and it's one thing if we all know each other and get used to one another if the Lord should choose to grow us as a congregation and lots of new people coming in, different personalities, different perspectives, and we are not eager 
and focused to maintain the unity of the Spirit, we're going to have a tough time. So he says, be eager. And then the second word, he says to maintain. And this is super important. It means to guard, to keep from escaping. And the first thing to realize about is we don't create unity, right? I think sometimes we think, well, I'm going to create unity in my church by behaving a certain way. You know, I really got to focus on these three things because I've really been, you know, kind of a jerk. And... But what he's telling us is he's not asking us to create unity. That's pretty impossible among a diverse group of people, isn't it? We are so different. We look at things from such different perspectives. We have different backgrounds. We have different life experiences. I cannot create unity. What am I going to create it around? Me? Oh, how far is that going to go? Not even one person, really. But to maintain unity in the body of Christ and the Spirit of God. We don't create it. Good news is the Spirit creates it. The Spirit creates it. We can hinder it. We can hide it. We can tarnish it. But we cannot create it, but the Spirit can. Consider this. Every Christian that you may have disfellowshipped from or simply hope to avoid, right, you will one day share perfect unity in glory forever. Every believer that you currently resist being unified with, one day you will be joined in unity forever. I mean, really the question is, why not start now? Why not start now? Whatever it is, whatever has caused disfellowship, if it is not around the rejection of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's probably something to work through. And sometimes it seems hard to maintain the unity. I mean, we have to be honest. Even believers, people can be annoying, people can be frustrating, people can be unloving, people can be cruel, people can be selfish. How can we possibly find unity among that crowd? This crowd, I meant. Well, again, we don't find it within ourselves. We find it without in what God gives us in Christ. That's the unifying force. It's not my belief system. It's not my priorities. It's not my church polity. It's Christ. It's around the unity we find in Christ. That's where we find unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. You might have experienced something like this. Have, have you ever been overseas or outside the country and perhaps participated in a church service or a worship service and you experience something of an unworldly unity and, 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 and connection with that group of people. I, I had this wonderful experience, I think I've shared with you before, a trip I took to Scotland and, you know, aside from visiting castles and the place where William Wallace hacked a bunch of British apart, one of, the, one of the greatest joys of the trip was connecting with um, a bunch of missionaries from an organization called 20 Schemes. And 20 Schemes is a group that uh, their mission is to bring the gospel to the poorest communities 
in Scotland. And if you didn't know it, Scotland has a lot of really, really poor communities. Similar to our own inner city projects and uh, the, the interesting thing about them is that as they developed after World War II, these projects and, and industrialization started to be pushed to the outside of the cities to um, relieve the pressure of the inner city. They created these projects that were around industrial zones. And, and, and they don't really have any history or culture before that period of time. But as jobs changed and industry changed, they found what they created was these whole communities that essentially had no, no culture, no, no history. And from the Christian perspective, it had no gospel witness. I mean, throughout Scotland, these are, these are populated all around the country. They're not, they're not centralized in any way. And virtually, without exception, there's no churches. And they have no money, so the Church of Scotland is not going to plant a church in these poor places that have no ability to pay for a pastor. So all that to say, I was invited into this service and it was just an incredible experience. It, it was fellowship like I had never experienced before. There was unity, there was joy. I was in, after the service, I was invited into families' homes where we had meals together and um, and, and there was a wide variety of people all the way from, you know, a dock worker kind of guy that had no education whatsoever all the way up to um, a, a, a nurse who had graduated with a nursing degree from the University of Aberdeen. And it was just phenomenal. And I came back wondering, you know, why was that? Why, why was there that experience with those believers and I don't quite experience that on a regular basis at my own home church. And I think the reason I came up with is that I had no expectations or I had no history with these people beyond the understanding that they are a brother and sister in Christ. And, I, and, and, and so the, the, only, the only thing that came to my mind when I related to this individual in front of me was, I'm going to be with this person forever in eternity. And there was no messing with the garbage that was here on this earth. It was all looking forward. And And I think Paul, in describing the ministry of, of reconciliation that all believers have been given, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Isn't that an interesting verse? Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, meaning the apostles knew Jesus as a man on the earth, but they don't consider him that anymore. They, they think of him solely in terms of eternal, glorified place. And I think that's what Paul is calling us to do, is we must look at others through a gospel lens. They are either a saint being sanctified, one day glorified, or a sinner under the wrath of God in the need of a Savior. That's our two options for anybody that comes before us. So finally, where comes unity of the Spirit? It comes from God through Christ, empowered by the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the question to us is, will we eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as a congregation? Will we eagerly maintain? 
the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, will we guard it? Will we nurture it? Will we cherish it? That's our stewardship. That's what Paul is telling us. That's our stewardship. Let's pray. Father, first we just, we give you thanks. Our hearts overflow even this morning in worship as we considered our salvation. Father, we we recognize that at a point in time that we were enemies of God, you saved us. Father, you called us. And you not only saved us and you called us, you called us to an eternal purpose in your kingdom for your glory. Father, we, we want to embrace that and we want to embrace it as a church body. And we know that, that what that will look like is a unified body of believers that love one another that are patient with one another, that bear one another's burdens. And Father, we know that we do not fret because you accomplish this by your spirit as we submit to the work that you do within us. And we just say, come Lord. Come Lord Jesus, do that work among us. Cause us to be unified in the spirit, to the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Let me leave you with Jude's doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed. Lord bless you guys.